Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today, Pastor Ben looks at the passage in Luke chapter 14, where we focus more on where those who sit at our table are actually sitting. Who are the people we like to place at the seat of honor? What does Jesus say about this seat of honor? All of these questions Pastor Ben will look at answering for us today. And just as a reminder, you can always check out our church, Cathedral of the Rockies, on our website and on our social media platforms. There you can see what is going on in the life of our church and even connect with us online. Links are in the show notes where you can check us out. And with that, enjoy today's sermon. Let's uh, settle in to hear Christ's teachings from Luke chapter 14 this morning. And just as a reminder, as we gathered for worship today, I asked you to uh, think about um, how we order our priorities, what we think of when we think of honor, and it comes to other people. So we're going to hear a very first century version of this, because that's Christ's context. But it's so important that as we gather together as the church, we're asking, what does this have to do with us? <laughs> how, does, how should this change the way that we organize our lives as followers of Jesus? So listen, listen to Christ's words. He's at a Pharisee's house at a dinner party, and this is what he says. We're going to start with um, uh, verse 1 in chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will have to come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I was reading this passage recently, uh, you know, I'm always asking, so what are we learning from this? And I, my first read through, I'm like, well, the first thing we read through this is Jesus is teaching us how to never be invited to another dinner party again. 
right? Because imagine you're at a friend's wedding reception or retirement party, and as soon as people started finding their seats, some random invited guest stood up and grabbed the microphone and started telling people how they should pick their seats right in the middle of the reception. Hey, everyone, just so you know, when someone invites you to a wedding like this, you shouldn't take the places of honor in the wedding but then they didn't stop there. No, they turned to the host of the wedding party as well and the bride and the bridegroom and said, also, when you people like you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back to their party as well. That would fly like a lead balloon, wouldn't it? You know, and I I try to practice this whenever I travel Have you noticed that if you have a seat in coach and you just seat yourself in first class, (laughs) what happens? You, You promptly get moved back, right? But I've never once had someone come along and say, my friend, you know, you deserve this first class seat. That has never happened to me. Anyone else? Has that happened to No. Oh, well, these are our honored folks over here. They should be the ones teaching this lesson this morning. But they, this is a really interesting social dynamic. But we have to remember that Jesus isn't just some random guest at this home, right? If we think in that way, we may think this is really intrusive of Jesus right in the middle of, the, of lunch to then start correcting people's seating habits, right? But he's actually invited there and we're told by Luke that everyone is watching him. Why? because they see Christ's authority. He's been invited for this purpose. It's almost akin to when, you, when an organization like a church or a company invite an outside leadership organization to come and watch how we do things and then to give us feedback on how we can be a better community, right? So he's kind of like this focus group that has been invited to this Pharisee's home to say, give us a teaching. How, how can we do better as God's people? And so Jesus is actually giving them a parable that they have invited him to teach them. So he's not intruding. He's been invited to teach them how to organize their lives in a more honorable way as God's people. So we have to ask today, why did Jesus feel prompted to share this parable at that gathering? What significance does it have for us today in the 21st century? Well, I have to tell you that pastors like myself are are constantly told by people inside and outside the church that they really want to see young families in the church. They want to see the church survive and grow. Amen? Amen. That's, that's, I feel like that's a shared priority. We may be looking at how to do those things different, but that is a shared goal and priority of the church. But then I, I remember that little comic strip about uh, a man at a podium, and he says, who wants change? And everybody raises their hands. And then he changes it and says, who wants to change? No one raises their hands, right? We may want that goal. We may want growth, but there always seems to be a resistance to make the changes needed to welcome the new people, to welcome the folks that we want to have within the church. We find change uncomfortable. Amen. (laughs) 
We want to grow, but we don't want to change anything to really make that happen. My friends, I've been, I have been in Boise pastoring now for over a decade. I moved back to take my first church in 2013, and I, that hit me. Like, you're having your, your second child. You start doing calculations like, oh, my word. I've been in Boise for a decade now pastoring. But, friends, I have to tell you, do you know <laughs> some council meetings and board meetings, and this is where we get together, they're the most exciting things about the church. <laughs> board meetings, right? I have to tell you. But do you know the most hostile board meeting and council meetings are, have been over carpet color? Signs? Pews versus chairs? Choruses versus hymns? Contemporary music? And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, Christianity is literally burning down in our culture and we're fighting over music. Right? Like, sometimes it feels like the priorities that shape our most contentious debates isn't over, how do we get new people here? (laughs) It's, you know, the grass was a little bit too tall last week. Or the the color of the the walls. You know, we, we get caught up in these small things rather than our goal and our objective of what we need to change to bring about the change we want to see, right? And I feel like the church needs to be the first group of people that wants to be the change they want to see in the world, right? And how we organize ourselves, our priorities, speak a lot about how we're willing to change to accomplish what we want. And sometimes people have been honest to me and said, you know what, Pastor, I really do want to grow. I really do want people to belong, but I just don't think I want it enough. Because the change that's required to invite and make people feel welcome is maybe just too much to ask for right now. At least that's honest, right? But let's say we're on it, we're fine. We, we change and people start coming, what happens when new people are here? Change stops. No. We invite different people with different opinions and different ideas about things, right? So more people come, the more change happens, not less. And so we may be uncomfortable when people come in and they're, they start expressing their ideas about paint colors and carpet color and pews and, and music and all these things, right? And we're just like, no, that's not the way thing, we do things here. <laughs> this, is, this is our church. You're still learning the ropes, right? Whose church is it? Right? It's God's church. And then you come in Sunday morning, and that's, that's all secondary compared to them coming in and taking your favorite spot on Sunday morning. <laughs> I, that new family is here, but man, they took my spot. That is it. <laughs> and really, I'm also speaking to myself as well because I get into routine as well of the things that I enjoy about church. But some of the most convicting things that the, that the Spirit of the Lord has come in and like, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> God comes along and says, you're more upset that they did that than you are celebrating that they're here. You are more upset that they did that thing or they expressed that opinion than you are celebrating the fact 
that they're here. (laughs) My friends, that's a priority shift. And I want us as a church, a community, to be the church that says, I am more excited that people are here than I am about the way we should do things, right? Because people are the priority. You know, one of the biggest lessons we've been learning as a church for the last 2,000 years? People are the church. If we could just get that lesson, (laughs) the institution's not the church. The doctrines and all these things that we put around that found the church and helped the church be the church, all those things, you wouldn't have it without the people. And you know what? Some churches, and I've been a part of this, some churches would rather be left alone with their beliefs and no people than they would to even be flexible and gracious about living their beliefs out, right? I told you that funny Celtic uh, parable, right, of this saint, this man of God who, who, who died and ha- was put in the tomb. And then three days later, they heard him whistling from with, within the tomb. They're like, oh my gosh, he's, he's alive again. So they, un- they took the stone away and the, the Celtic saint came out and he's like, oh, brothers, sisters, I've been to heaven. I've learned so many things. And they're like, really? What did you learn? Like, I learned that we were wrong about so many different things. And they just looked at him and then put him back in the tomb and sealed it back up. <laughs> Sometimes we don't really even want to question deeply held convictions even when God shows up to question those things, right? So we as the church are called to be flexible with our seating chart. (laughs) And oftentimes I think we as the church in our culture, politically, socially, culturally, we find ourselves taking the seats of highest honor rather than seeing who needs a seat, rather than inviting the people who need to be in the positions of power. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. And sometimes the church is like, how can politics serve me? How can wealth serve me? How can the culture serve Christianity, rather than Christianity turning around and saying, I have this basin full of water. Whose feet need washing? Because that's what my Savior did. (laughs) Who's hungry? How can we multiply what we have to share with these hungry crowds? Someone told me the other day, we need more people to vote. And in that moment, I'm like, yes. But we need more compassionate people to vote. We need to vote with more love. We need to vote with more humility. We need to engage in our culture, in our politics, in our, in, in, in our society with more humility and compassion and empathy. Because I, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't lack in legalism. We got enough of that. <laughs> we don't lack in dogma. We don't lack in, in people angrily shouting what they believe. We don't lack in any of that. But there is a discrepancy in empathy, putting ourselves in the shoes of other people. I I thought the other day, you know what? I I think it would be really helpful for American Christians to be the first people who are impacted by the policies they vote for. How would that change the way that we engage in our society? Because sometimes it's just like, I'm just voting for this issue that impacts them. And then I get to live my life as a white, straight Christian guy. 
And I'm not impacted by that legislation at all. But that's what I believe. When are we going to personalize our beliefs? When are we going to humanize them? And say, it's one thing when it exists up here and I'm really convicted about it. It's another thing when that impacts the very life of another person. And I believe that's where the rubber meets the road with our Christianity, is that when our beliefs become real, when we vote our beliefs, when we engage in our beliefs, are they impacting the vulnerable, the poor, the marginalized, the weak, the suffering, the hungry, the thirsty in a positive way or a negative one? How are we organizing the structures and the seats of honor and power in our culture? You see, this is what Jesus was encountering in the first century in his gathering in that place. This same rule applied for our passage in Luke, that they organized their society in certain ideologies and power. In the culture that Jesus was living in, social hierarchies were very rigid and shaped gatherings just like the one Jesus was attending. Everyone knew who was at the top, and more importantly, they knew who was at the bottom and who should stay there. So, of course, gatherings like this could turn into people showing off their status and their wealth or trying to make themselves appear higher in status than others. Maybe they were seated here, but they're just going to take one seat higher up to show everyone else that they're rising the social ladder. It really encouraged people to be elitist and prideful about their social position. Those seen as the lower class, though, the poor, the differently abled, all those who Jesus mentioned are those who simply didn't fit in or who would just not be invited at all. Gatherings like this could often turn into a vivid display of the haves and the have-nots. But that wasn't just true for the culture of Christ's day, right? (laughs) Really, in every cultural context, public perceptions influence how someone is seen, addressed, and treated. Ideological frameworks render people and groups by the categories of particular norms, biases, beliefs, exclusions, and hierarchies of value. Such categories can produce a variety of effects along the spectrum from harmful to liberating. For an example... In an impressive system that attaches moral significance to economic privilege, let me read that phrase again, in a society that attaches moral significance to economic privilege, someone living in poverty or dependent on public assistance might be stigmatized as immoral, lazy, or incompetent. We see this often in a capitalistic society like ours, where even helping people through governmental means who have been stigmatized in such ways can be seen as immoral or catering, creating a system of entitlement and dependency. Especially in a place like Idaho, where it feels like our mission statement in Idaho sometimes is pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. (laughs) And I hear Martin Luther King Jr. saying all the time, that is a cruel thing to say to someone who has no boots. But for Luke, those living in economic insecurity, the lowly are categorized as cherished recipients of God's 
favor and supported in times of distress. Luke's narrative compels believers to resist ideologies that diminish the humanity of others along the way. As Carolyn J. Sharp, professor of Hebrew scriptures at Yale Divinity School, says so beautifully, she says, God's realm is built not on the displays of wealth, prestige, or political influence, but on love of the neighbor, even in conditions of conflict. It's so important because in conditions that are uncertain and conflicting, that's when we feel like love of neighbor is kind of secondary, right? It's not a priority. But especially in positions of conflict and uncertainty, that's when love of neighbor matters the most (laughs) because we really do need each other. This parable that Jesus is talking about is about entitlement and privilege and how our relationships are shaped by them. For example, I know that as a white, straight Christian man in America, especially as a Christian pastor, I have historically had the places of honor reserved at the table for me, especially in places like Idaho. I was born here in Idaho and grew up here, and I know how it works. Just look at the people in the positions of power in Idaho. You will see more people who look like me than anyone else. At a recent conference that I spoke at, there was a a black historian there for Idaho history, and it was mind-blowing to me how much I didn't know about black history in Idaho want to encourage you to make that a priority. Look at, the, uh, look at the history of people of color in Idaho, especially Asian Americans and African Americans. And he told me that in all of Idaho history, guess how many black council members there have been in all of Idaho? Ten. Ten. In all of Idaho history, there has been ten black council people. That's mind-boggling to me. So this kind of rhythm of uh, who we're electing to power, the, the people who hold positions of power, that influences how power is wielded and exercised, right? What does it mean when people who have no idea what it means to be a woman are making decisions for women and healthcare decisions for women. This is not in my sermon notes, so this is for free. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I was was at my previous church, and like, there was a man on Idaho City Council, he's Idaho legislature, and a woman was talking about healthcare for women, and she was trying to advocate for certain things. It was just well-documented, scientifically grounded, all these things. And his response was, so with this pill, is it, can we have a woman swallow a camera to follow where that pill goes and how it impacts the uterus? <laughs> Do you know where... You figured it out, right? These are people making decisions for women. I could not believe it. I'm like, okay, this is why people are upset. Like, 
These are people writing laws for people they have no experience, right? And I'm just like, this, this particular individual was like in his 60s. I'm like, have you spoke to a woman before? Have you taken it? Like, I was homeschooled, and I got more anatomy class than you apparently did. Man, but that's just one instance, right? What if when it comes to marginalized communities, the poor, refugees, these people in places like Idaho who we are sharing our communities with, what does it mean when people who have had positions of privilege and seats at the table their entire life make decisions that directly impact those communities? Friends, this is where the church needs to think more seriously and deeply about, especially when candidates run on a Christian platform. We have a voice, whether we like it or not. We have been given a place of honor at the political table. Do we use it for our interests or the interests of others? Paul, Philippians 2 says over and over again, do not seek your own interests, but the interests of others. Whatever you do for the least among you, you do unto me. Our king said that. Jesus said that. So how we organize ourselves in these positions of power and authority at these tables that we gather in our society matters for who the world believes Christianity and Jesus to be through us. That's our witness. That preaches the gospel, whether we like it or not. So are we preaching a gospel where the poor, the lame, the differently abled, the marginalized communities feel not only heard but served by the ways in which we participate in our society? And that is at the core of what Jesus is getting at here, how we practice Power and influence. To put it in the terms of Christ's words here, who can afford to throw lavish dinner parties? What happens when people who can afford to throw lavish dinner parties only invite other people who can throw lavish dinner parties? Who gets left out? When those who have power and influence only share with others who also have power and influence, the vulnerable and the marginalized are neglected and harmed every single time. And Jesus wants to change all that. You see, Jesus' mama had a lot of good things to say. She had a prophetic song about her little boy who was about to come into the world. And you can read all about it in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 58. We have a fancy word for it in the church called the Magnificat, but I think it's best to see it through Mary's deep love for her soon coming son. She's saying that he would fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. And she's saying that he would lift up the lowly and pull the powerful down from their thrones. She was singing about how the revelation of God and Jesus would turn systems of wealth and power that abused and oppressed people upside down. People just like her, a peasant girl from Nazareth. (laughs) Where the most vulnerable, those who are treated as the least to receive good things in the current systems of power and privilege would be the first to inherit the kingdom of God. 
And then her little boy would grow up to say, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes that you are criticizing, they will be the first to enter the kingdom of heaven before you. That's her little boy. She must have trained him really well. (laughs) Jesus echoes this vision so many times in his ministry. We would be here all day, and maybe we should. Just be here all day looking at the comparisons between Mary's prophetic song and Jesus as an adult. Matthew 20, he says, the last will be first and the first will be last. The gospel comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Let me say that again. The gospel of Jesus comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Jesus comes to bring really good news to the poor. And it's also really good news for those who have been given positions of privilege, wealth, and power who are radically focused on helping the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized. But it's not good news for everybody. It isn't good news for those who want to continue securing and maintaining their own power and wealth at the expense of other people. The gospel is not good news for them. For them, the gospel of Jesus isn't good news. For folks like, I don't know, King Herod, (laughs) the rich young ruler, Caesar Augustus, and all the others in the New Testament, all men of great wealth and power that didn't respond super joyfully to the news of this coming king that was coming into the world. Especially when a teenage peasant girl was singing in the streets about how God is going to turn their systems of exploitation of people like her upside down. They weren't thrilled with the idea of being pulled from their thrones and sent, sent away empty. But people aren't thrilled that, by that when they refuse to repent from the ways they're using their power, wealth, and authority. You see, we have stripped the gospel of so much of its social teeth when we have made it just a spiritual gathering and a spiritual club. This radical gospel can transform the world if we let it but it starts with the ways in which we exercise our power, privilege, and wealth. It is this gospel that Jesus is describing at this dinner party, and it compels us to ask ourselves, how do we order our relationships, our social and political standing, our economic standing, our religious status, and leadership around privilege and power rather than humility and hospitality? humility and hospitality. How does our cultural context shape our social hierarchies, the way that we honor and dishonor? What is the ideological frameworks that measure people and groups by the light of their particular norms and biases and we exclude them based on those things? What seats of privilege do we have at the table and who doesn't have a seat? Those are the questions we as the church need to be asking moving forward if we hope to have the same humility and hospitality that Christ is asking for, especially as a church whose slogan is all means all. (laughs) Does the all really mean all in how we use our resources? Thanks for listening today. Here at Cathedral of the Rockies, our motto is all means all, and we strive to truly live this out. 
You can help be a part of this by giving to us online. Here at the Amity Campus specifically, we feed the hungry through our very active food pantry. Also, we are building up our children and youth programs so that we can serve all families in our area and then also provide safe spaces for them to just be themselves. All means all. Any amount given is an investment that allows us to continue to serve those who join us in person and online and serve the growing neighborhoods around our church building. There is a link in the show notes where you can give online. Thanks again for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.